everyone, it's James Rudd here with The Heart Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Marcio Bittencourt from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Marcio recently wrote an editorial all about the use of cardiac CT imaging and calcium scoring for predicting events in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. This is an area of imaging that's not in the current guidelines, but he's talking about a paper published in Heart, which will be free, as will his editorial, that is a meta-analysis and a systematic review of the use of CT for prediction of perioperative events. Marcio and I have a great discussion all about risk prediction, what we can do when we identify patients at high risk, what medications might work, whether there's a role for revascularization, and there are many links in the show notes this week, so please feel free to go and have a look, follow the links, and uh, increase your education. Thanks very much for listening. So perhaps we could start off, Marcio, by you introducing yourself for the heart audience. Okay, so uh, so my name is Marcio Sommerbittencourt. I'm a cardiologist and also an epidemiologist. I have a, a master's in public health. I work at the University Hospital from the University of Sao Paulo and also at the uh, Hospital Israelita Albert Einstein, which is also another hospital that has its own uh, medical school. Uh, both, both of them are in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I work as a clinical cardiologist, uh, doing clinical work, and uh, also work with imaging. I read cardiac, mostly cardiac CTs, and I also work uh, with research. Most of my research interest is on cardiovascular epidemiology, uh, risk prediction, risk modeling for asymptomatic and symptomatic individuals, and uh, also with more focused interest on atherosclerosis and coronary artery disease. And also, I work with research in cardiovascular imaging, cardiac CT, uh, also with an interest of uh, guiding therapy and making medical decisions based on tests and costs, cost effectiveness and use. So really, clinical applications of, of imaging, how can we use it and how can that change uh, our, our practice? That's a lot of, uh, lot of things on your plate there, Marcia. You're a busy guy. And you also worked in Boston for a while, right, doing uh, an MPH? Yeah, I, I got my MPH and I was a fellow at the Brigham and Women's Hospital for about two and a half years, where I did research in cardiovascular imaging uh, with a whole group of imaging from uh, nuclear and MR, but mostly on, on CT. And at the same time, I had my, my Master's of Public Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. You recently wrote an editorial, Marcio, for Heart, which is called Coronary CTA Works for Preoperative Risk Stratification, but do we know when and how to use it? And you wrote that with co-author Daniel Golandro, who's also from Sao Paulo, I understand. Um, yeah, she's actually from Sao Paulo. She's working in Switzerland now. Perfect. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit, perhaps, about the whole issue of preoperative testing for patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery? I mean, why do we need to do this? Yeah, I think that's like a, a, a long, long story if you track back in history, but uh, I mean, since uh, some of the patients we, we end up uh, intervening on with uh, any, and this is basically non-cardiac surgery, like cardiac surgery would be a different group, but on non-cardiac surgery, there's there's some patients that will have complications, mostly cardiac complications that would really increase the risk of mortality or uh, other severe complications post-operative. And with that in mind, I think people started thinking that maybe those uh, events can be uh, prevented or at least predicted and some intervention could be the side this uh, either the surgery could be replanned or retaught 
or interventions could be taken that could reduce this risk. So based on this idea, I think all cardiac societies across the globe have been discussing how can we find those patients more likely to have events. And this is mostly, if, if you look at it on, on the cardiovascular world, mostly uh, coronary artery disease, but not only that. If you look at the guidelines for preoperative care, there's some discussion about heart failure complications, valve disease complications, and how to handle those yeah. also. But I think since most of the heart failure and valve patients and arrhythmia patients, most of them are pretty uh, symptomatic or have a clear prior uh, history, they're following their own cardiologist. So there's not as much discussion on how to handle those patients. And I think most of the broad discussion have been on, on preventing MI and coronary artery disease complications. And based on that, what the guidelines have been developing is a strategy on how to investigate and how to handle these patients better. And although there's a, there's different guidelines all over the world, there's like the uh, ACCAJ guideline, which is a 2014 version, so not super up-to-date, but uh, that's the one available. The European guidelines also 2014 version. We also have a Brazilian guidelines 2017. Despite some other differences, their global strategy is about the same. And it's always the first question is whether the surgery is really urgent urgent or an emergency surgery. If this is an emergency surgery, there's no question. You need to operate. You go to the surgery. Uh, if there's risk, you try to handle it the best you can, but there's not that much discussion. Okay. If the surgery is not, uh, say, not really high risk, next question is whether from a cardiovascular standpoint, you're stable or unstable. So are you on a, uh, ACS? Do you have a very severe valve disease or you're like on uh, pulmonary edema or very decompensated heart failure, which is also non-urgent surgery, patients unstable, you're going to stabilize the patient. And that question is also easy. But for most patients that go to surgery, they're not really urgent surgeries and they're not really that severe from a cardiovascular standpoint. And that's where we get to the a more detailed approach. And what the guidelines do, maybe the steps might change a little bit depending on the guideline, but the overall idea is to ask what is the clinical risk of the patient using some risk score? How big is the surgery? So how likely it is that this surgery will get to complications? And plus minus an information about uh, how functional the patient is and uh, how much exercise can the patient do just by interview. So most of the guidelines use the cutoff of four mats. So if you do more than four uh, metabolic equivalents of, uh, of of exercise, that's probably fine because ex expected stress of surgery shouldn't be much larger than that. So they usually ask, can you do more than four mats? Um, are you, uh, do you have any other clinical risk factor? Is it going to be a big surgery? Most of the big surgeries are vascular, but it's like the broad approach. So if you're higher risk based on those criteria, then yes, there might be benefit of testing. There's been less testing over the years. We at first thought we could prevent everything, so we decided to test more. I think nowadays we test a lot less, but the overall picture would be clinical risk score, uh, functional capacity, and the how big the surgery is going to be. And we're doing the pre-op testing to, I guess, identify patients that are at high risk of perioperative MIs and potentially inform the discussion about, you know, balancing the risk of surgery with the risk of having that intraoperative or postoperative MI, right? Yeah, that's correct. I think is is what we're doing. Is like, of course, we're measuring the risk benefit of the surgery of the procedure. Thinking risk is the cardiovascular risk, and I think we do that for a, a number of reasons. The first one is uh, just to inform risk. We want 
patients and clinicians and surgeons to make the best informed decision. So this is the extent of risk that we can measure. But I don't think it's just informing risk because I think there's a we usually think, ah, can we revascularize this patient? This was the initial thought when this strategy right. started. But I think there's a lot more that can be discussed when you're when you're when you're using such a test. So if you're higher risk of complications, we might discuss what surgical approach we're using. We don't usually discuss that in in cardiology guidelines, but many of the interventions we do on patients from a, a surgery uh, point of view. Uh, there's more than one option. You can do a laparoscopic or open surgery. You can do a, uh, I don't know, endovascular procedure for an aortic aneurysm, or you can do an open surgery. There's advantages and disadvantages, and depending on which surgery and what approach you decide. And even some surgeries are not really mandatory. There are alternative non-surgical approaches, like you've got like prostate cancer. There are non-surgical approaches. And I think the whole uh, decision of which kind of approach, how aggressive uh, the surgery will be, might change depending on the risk. So it is also a discussion on how to intervene. On my take, it's also a discussion on how to do the whole perioperative care. The anesthesiology might make a different approach depending on how risky we think the procedure is. And one thing we usually do, at least in Brazil, is also uh, recommend whether this patient should be uh, at ICU or at the telemetry floor right after surgery, despite, regardless of the clinical picture. Do we need to monitor and uh, do serial EKGs or troponins? So if you think it's high risk, you might monitor a bit closely the two, three days after surgery and try to identify events early and reduce risk. And of course, there is the interventions themselves. I already talked about a bit about revascularizations. There's some discussion and even some studies about uh, statins on preoperative pre or perioperative care. There's some uh, on aspirin, there's some on beta blockers and even on other drugs. So we could, could potentially inform not just interventions, uh, cardiac interventions, prior to surgery, but also how to best manage uh, risk reduction uh, medications and risk reduction care more globally. That's that's how I see why we do the test. And that's a that's a brilliant summary, Marcio. And what I'll do is put links to the both the ACC AHI guidelines and the ESC guidelines in the show notes so people can go and have a look at the the flow diagrams that are listed in those diagram in those guidelines. Um, in terms of what the guidelines say about imaging, uh, I've just been looking at them this morning here. It says that functional testing, so things like myocardial perfusion imaging with nuclear techniques and stress echo, are permitted uh, in patients who are deemed to be at high risk of perioperative events. Uh, but cardiac CT is not listed. And this really brings us on to the subject of your editorial. Uh, you're discussing a paper which again was published in Heart and will be open access, where the authors did a systematic review and meta-analysis of the use of cardiac CTA or coronary CTA for preoperative workup. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the authors did in that trial? Yeah, so this is a this is a, as you mentioned a meta-analysis. I think um, despite the interest, there hasn't been as much research, and in particular, as much as like larger scale research on the use of coronary CTA for preoperative care. I think there's an area where we still uh, are looking for data. So I think this uh, this meta-analysis is really interesting. And what this authors did is they. They basically did a systematic review and selected papers that have used CT as a coronary imaging strategy and to predict uh, risk, perioperative care, uh, risk of MI or MACE. They looked at actually at MACE. They started with, um, of course, a large number of papers and they ended up selecting 11 papers for their qu qual 
qualitative analysis. Among those 11 papers, uh, some of them had only calcium score data, some of them ha had only CTA data, and some of them had both. Uh, it, the total is like uh, 3,500 3, patients roughly. And um, unfortunately, the most interesting part, in my opinion, which is the coronary CTA quantitative data, is only based on four of those um, 11 papers, because the other ones that had CTA data, they were not, uh, they didn't provide enough information to be, uh, to, to be included in the, quant uh, the quant quantitative analysis. But in short, what they've shown, which I think is expected, is the, the more plaque and the more disease you have, the more likely you are to have an event um, during your preoperative care. And I think some numbers are interesting. They show that individuals with no plaque, like um, no, no plaque at all, there's a 2% MACE event. Okay. If you're non-obstructive, there's about 4%. And if you're obstructive, they, they were able to stratify based on the extent of the obstructive disease. So single vessel would have 7% MACE events, perioperative care. And uh, the multi-vessel is 23%, so really high if you're multi-vessel. Uh, and what I think is, is, is interesting, if I would highlight some aspects, is first, first thing is even if you're no plaque at all, there is some risk. 2% is low, but there is some risk. Uh, this is also because you have type 2 MIs that have, might not, have nothing to do with the coronaries. Like it might be anemia, it might be hypotension, something else that happened around the surgical time. Okay. There's the non-obstructive plaque with some increase in events. So some plaque is already bad because they can rupture or in this high stress, anemia, hypotension risk, they might lead to some MIs despite being non-obstructive. And of course, the obstructive is kind of what I would say, at least to some extent, expected that the more obstructive plaques there are, the higher the risk. One caveat on that is that you're always looking at uh, post-op MI. Some studies have measured troponin as part of their protocol. So some of those MIs might be small. So the clinical implications of uh, all the MIs is not really clear. Some of them probably large, but some of them might be small MIs. So there's some room for discussion on that, especially for those no plaque or non-obstructive plaque, but definitely the more plaque, the more obstructive plaque, the more extensive the obstructive disease, the higher your risk of having a MACE event uh, around your surgical time. And the authors also made uh, quite a play of the high negative predictive value of having a either a zero calcium score or a negative CTA, right? Yeah, they, 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 one of the analysis they perform is really looking at negative predictive value and they basically talk about, an, I think, a 96 uh, percent negative predictive value if you're normal CTA, which I think is kind of expected. If there's no, there's no plaque or there's if there's no calcium, the chance of more plaque is really small. So if you're no plaque or minimal plaque, you're really unlikely to have major events. And I would even extend that it's not in their paper, but uh, also by planning the procedure, this patient wouldn't have any room for uh, risk reduction strategies. So you can be really clear that this if you want to do the surgery, this is low risk, and the patient is at, at its best moment to operate from a cardiovascular standpoint, at least from the coronary part. Okay. And we should, of course, emphasize, as I think we already have, that this was uh, not a clinical trial. This was a systematic review, a meta-analysis. So, so, of course, CTA has not been tested in a prospective trial of, of perioperative event prediction. But how do you think this paper might start the ball rolling in terms of uh, maybe encouraging new trials or even informing guidelines? Yeah, I think uh, at least for guidelines, this is a, a, a start. I think those 
you would usually start with very small studies and then a meta-analysis of the small studies to see where we're going. And I think this is this is not enough data to put to put you at the highest level of evidence, but it gives you some idea that this might be an alternative. Uh, and if you look at the data from stress testing, uh, it's actually also not that strong. Most of, of the data for stress echo or uh, nuclear perfusion imaging, it's kind of older data, also based on meta-analysis of smaller studies and most mostly retrospective data. So we're kind of kind of as limited with CTA um, as we are with the other methods for uh, perioperative risk stratification. Um, but I think this. Uh, I would look at this paper a bit on the broader picture of how much CTA has been shown to be a good risk prediction strategy for coronary artery disease. And I think this comes uh, with the whole package of data that we had from some of our data from Boston from when I was there, data from the confirmed registry and data from other groups that have shown the prognostic value of CTA on stable coronary artery disease. This has also been uh, built upon data from ER, uh, CT, uh, and the ER risk stratification for chest pain, where you have CT stat and the, the ROMICAT 2 showing that the negative predictive value is pretty good and the ability to identify high-risk patients also good. And also comes more on the newer data for stable disease with PROMISE and Scott Hart, where there's kind of consistent data, data showing that disease detected by CTA is predictive of events and interventions based on uh, on this anatomy might change your prognosis. If this works for ER patients with chest pain, if this works with stable chest pain, it's it kind of is logic that it should work in other scenarios. And I think this paper gives some data at least to show that the risk prediction part, not the reduction of events for for treatment, but the risk prediction part is also along the same direction for the perioperative care. So I'd say. It's a start for the, the pre-op uh, evaluation, probably something to inform guidelines to at least give some sort of recommendation, even with not, not a strong um, level of evidence, but probably something of a class two as an alternative for stress, at least when stress is not adequate or when stress is not that good. Okay. Well, that I mean, that sounds sensible. And I guess we'll have to see how the guidelines uh, change over the next few years. Perhaps so I can just finish by asking you in your own practice in Sao Paulo. I mean, do you tend to to use the things like the Reynolds cardiac risk index score? Do you use functional testing frequently? How do you tend to practice? So uh, the, the Brazilian guidelines, as I said, they're kind of like structured comparable to the other guidelines, although they're a 2017 version. And I think the structure of people following Brazil is mostly the same. Uh, in The Brazilian guidelines recommend more the lead the American College of Physicians and one score called EMAPA, which is a local score that's validated in Brazil. But in general, say it's the strategy is the same and the high risk clinical profile patients uh, tend to set, to be sent to some testing. Uh, our guidelines also recommend functional testing. I think that's what most people do. But one thing I would say, and that's even more from my imaging perspective as, a, as an imager than my clinical perspective as when I take care of patients, it's not as, as unusual, though they're not on the guidelines, it's not completely unusual for me to uh, to perform cardiac CTs for pre-op evaluation of patients. So some clinicians, despite the uh, lack of recommendations, I eventually see some CTs. They're a minority. I think most people do functional, regular treadmill testing or imaging. 
but uh, some people do uh, order coronary CTAs selectively for preoperative care in Brazil, and I think that might be the case in, in other countries. And it's I think the, the results we see, of course, this is not a study, but it's kind of as we see with coronary CTAs overall. There is some, some unexpected patients with no plaque or with way more plaque than you expected, but I don't have data to say this is uh, better or worse than other methods. Uh, but I'll say overall in Brazil, the strategy is comparable to other countries with most patients not undergoing any testing because they don't need it. And the minority that needs some additional risk stratifications, I'll say they go through uh, mostly functional testing. I think we do a lot of non-imaging in our public system, maybe a bit more imaging in the private uh, insurance coverage, but overall more functional testing. And then, of course, we get to the, the thorny issue of when you identify somebody, let's say, with a high ischemic burden or a strongly positive treadmill test, then the guidelines are really, you know, and the trials have shown us that revascularization doesn't necessarily improve things, right? Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting area overall for all testing and all risk stratification approaches. That's where I think we need to focus our future research whichever imaging you want to use or whichever risk stratification, even if clinical, uh, if you find something of a higher risk in whichever strategy, uh, how to intervene on and what will work. And revascularization is not, it hasn't been as studied as, as we wish, I would say. There's one larger randomized trial from 2004 uh, on New England that showed basically no benefit. After that, there is a meta-analysis that basically says there's other retrospective data, but not much uh, more than this one for prospective randomized data. So it is uh, limited in terms of what we know. But in general, there was no evidence that revascularization as, a, as an intervention prior to surgery works. But if you look at the, the whole study, this, this New England study, first author is, I have the study open just to... I think it's the, the, it's the CARP study, right? Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's so uh, it's McFall's the first author. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, uh, the 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 key issues, if you look at their strategy, it's it's really broad. With anyone that's kind of a higher clinical risk, we send to cath, and whenever there is an obstruction, we have intervened upon. So basically, they did almost half of the patients were PCIs. And uh, if you look only a third were three vessel disease, if you get our CTA data from from Kashi, if you're if you're not three vessel multi vessel disease. Your risk is a third. So yeah. not all of these patients are really, really high risk. So we really don't know if some of those patients might benefit. So the really high ischemic burden, the really uh, complex anatomy, some might benefit. And we just don't know. I, I'm not sure it does benefit. And there's always the downside of delaying surgery, depending on which surgery it is. But I think although in general, the revascularization strategy does not work, I think the saying it never works is not as clear as we wish we should know by now. Right. So I think there's room for testing there. And I, I would extend that also to the medical management. If we go over beta blockers or aspirin or statins, maybe statins is fine. We know kind of better that it works. But I think there's room for discussion, even on medical management, what works, what doesn't, and how can we better guide those the medical management based on risk, clinical or imaging risk stratification. Perfect. I think that's a brilliant place to finish, Marcio. And I want to thank you very much for your time for joining me today and sharing your insights into this fascinating paper. As I say, I will make both your editorial and the paper free to access so everybody can uh, read it. But thank you very much for your time. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, the opportunity to write the editorial and the opportunity to discuss a bit about preoperative care and this, this podcast. No problem at all, Marcia. Thank you.